Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. Hebrews 11, 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish. 11, 31. One verse. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this example of Rahab. We pray that we'll learn by this example and seek to emulate this kind of faith. Teach us, Lord, that you desire faith. You desire faith no matter who we are. True faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've come to the last of the specific examples, or examples by name, that we have in Hebrews chapter 11. He has named several and many individuals throughout this chapter. He will also, in the following verse, name a few more, but he will not explain very much about them as he has been doing. And our last example is a very fitting example. It is, it is the example of Rahab the harlot. This example of Rahab the harlot is a very good and fitting example here as well. We note a few things that we have observed throughout this chapter. One is that these individuals endured until the end, and endured until they died. They died in faith. That's one of the things we've observed. Another major point that we have observed is that they endured in the face of death. When they themselves were threatened with death, they endured. It didn't matter what was set before them. It did not matter what the persecution was. It did not matter what the temptation was to deny faith in Christ. They did not do so. They endured until the end. In fact, this is also the example of Rahab. Rahab, she could have, she might have perished along with all of her countrymen, but she did not. She not only did not perish physically, she not, did not perish spiritually. This is the example we have in Rahab. She had the prospect of death set before her, and yet she turned away from that temptation and, of death, and she turned to the Lord to believe in the Lord's Word, to believe in the Gospel, to believe what she had heard, and to believe in this true and living God found in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. She believed just like that. And that's why she was spared. Not only she, but her household. Now when we think of Rahab, let's recount also what actually happened in her life. Let's recount very briefly what happened in her life. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2 is the primary chapter we have of her life. She is living in the city of Jericho. She lives there. Her house is on the city wall. Presumably that the wall was of such a kind that you could build a house of some sort on the city wall. That's where her house was. Joshua, the successor of Moses, is about to invade the land of Canaan, and Jericho is one of those cities that is on the edge of Canaan. It's not right in the middle of the land of Canaan. It's more on the eastern side, not too far away from the Jordan River, which they will have to cross before they get to Jericho on the east side. Now, Joshua, before he actually does invade, he wants two spies to go into the land and even, and especially to the city of Jericho because that is the first city 
they will conquer. So he sends these two spies there, and the two spies go and find this house of Rahab the harlot. They go find her house, and they request lodging there, and she welcomes them into the house. We do not know how they knew to go there. We do not know how they suspected that they would have a favorable treatment. We do not know any of that, but they did, and we see that that happened. Well, when these two spies go to the city of Jericho, the king of Jericho, since he also has his officials spread throughout, and his officials also know Israel is about to invade, so his officials are on high alert, and they're looking for spies. They're looking for spies, and they are told that two spies from Joshua and Israel have entered Jericho, and he has sent to go find them. And well, his messengers, the messengers of the king, officials of the king, went to the house of Rahab because they suspected that that's where they were. And they were correct, actually. The king, the king of Jericho's <clears throat> messengers were correct. That's where they were. However, by this point, Rahab had taken them away from the main house and put them on the roof where she had stalks of flax. She had the flax up there, the stalks of flax, and they were big enough and numerous enough that she could keep the two men on the roof under them, and if anybody ever went up to the roof, they could not be detected because there were so many and they were so big the, on the roof. The flax, the stalks of flax would cover these two men, and that's what she did. So when the messengers came to her house, she dialogues with them, and she says, yes, verse 4, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I did not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Now here, she says, yes, the men came, but they went out. They did their business, and they went out, and I don't know. Maybe you'll be able to overtake them. Go find them. When actually, they were still on the roof of the house. After the messengers of the king went away, she goes up to the roof of the house. She dialogues with the two spies of Joshua. And the two spies of, of Joshua with her hear what she says. And what does she say? She says, I know what God has done in, in your nation. I know what God is about to do. And we all are demoralized. We are dispirited. We don't have the ability to conquer you. So... You, you and what God is doing for you is certainly going to happen, and I believe that it's going to happen. I'm with you on this. And because I'm with you on this, protect me and protect my household. Deliver us when you come to invade. Don't kill us. Don't make us perish. Don't destroy us. Preserve us and give us our lives. And the two spies say, okay, we'll do that. If everybody stays in your house, and if you put this scar uh, cord there by on the side of the house if you put it there then we'll know that everybody's in your house we'll protect that house we'll destroy everything else and you will be delivered and that's what happened the two spies go back to joshua joshua knows that and then they are spared chapter six joshua chapter six they are eventually spared when jericho is conquered when Jericho is conquered in chapter 6, verse 17. 6, 17. And the city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live. 
because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So they spared her. They spared her. Not only did they spare her, notice verse 25. They spared her and her household. 625. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared, and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. She and her household now live in the midst of Israel because of her faith manifested in what she did to benefit the spies and the Joshua and the nation of Israel. Now this is the Rahab the harlot that is in mind in Hebrews 11.31. This is the Rahab he is teaching us to emulate. Emulate her. Now, what are some lessons that we can observe? If you have your finger or your page still in Joshua chapter 2, let us see a little bit more specifically about what faith she had. Now, it says in Hebrews 11.31, she had faith. And because the Scripture says it, because the New Testament says it, we must believe it. We must believe it. It also says it in James 2.25 that Rahab, the harlot, had faith. These two places, Hebrews 11.31 and James 2.25, both indicate that she was a woman of faith. However, I think it is necessary for us, since when we read passages of the Old Testament, for us to also observe that what the apostles tell us in the New Testament is actually quite reliable, quite stable, quite faithful in the interpretation of the Old Testament. I hope we can learn a lesson from this on how to read the Old Testament and how to observe that when the apostles teach us that they have faith, they actually in, and indeed did have faith, and there is plenty of evidence for it. Okay? This will be one way or one lesson in interpreting the Old Testament. We've already seen from chapter 2. What did she do? What is the evidence of Rahab's faith? This is what we are pursuing. What is the evidence of her faith? The evidence of her faith, I believe, is manifested in that the two spies of Israel, they went to her house, and they had some kind of confidence that they would be welcomed in that house, which means they must have heard the word on the street. They must have heard something. They must have known something for them to go to that house. Because if they went to that house, any one of the members of that household, Rahab, and any number of her family members, her parents, her brothers, her sisters, and all that belonged to them, could have snitched on the two spies and told the king. They could have told the secret, oh, these two spies of Israel are here, but go and tell the king so that they could be captured. Somehow, the two spies knew that they could have a refuge, that they could have safety in her house to spy out the land. And not only did they know that, they were correct. It was true. She welcomed them into the house. She welcomed them into the house, and not only that, but she actually said something that was inaccurate to the, two, to the messengers of the king, the officials of the king, in order to get them away from her house. 
She was preserving these two lives, the two lives of the spies of Joshua. She preserved their life by saying something that was untrue or inaccurate about the two men, about where they were. She said, yes, they came here, but they left. Go follow them. Go find them. You'll be able to overtake them. You'll find them somewhere. But no, they were on the roof of her house. Therefore, she understood that it was right and good to preserve innocent human life in the face of death. She had faith to do that. And not only did she have faith to do that, she did that at the risk of her own life. Correct? What if the officials of the king had come into the house and went up to the roof, and for whatever reason, maybe they had some sense that the two spies might be on the roof, and even under the stalks of flax, that they went up there and looked and shifted the stalks of flax in order to find them. In, or they stayed there long enough to wait for them to sneeze, to cough, to be hungry, to have to go to the restroom, to do something, but they didn't stay there long enough. And so she protected them in that way at the risk of her own life and even at the risk of the life uh, of her own household. Because the king could have, in anger, if he had found them in her house, said, not only Rahab do you deserve to die, but all of your household deserves to die because none of you cared enough about your country, cared enough about your city, cared enough about me, the king, to tell me so we could be protected against Joshua and the invasion of Israel. He could have executed all of them. She risked her life to say those inaccurate things to get the officials of the king to go away. She did so. Then, what else is an evidence of her faith? It says in verse 9, she goes up to the men on the roof, and this is what she says specifically. Notice carefully what she says. I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know that the Lord has given you the land. So we have to ask, how did she know? She must have heard from people who had been in Israel, been in Egypt, been in surrounding nations, heard what God had said by his prophet Moses and now his prophet Joshua. What God had said to them, that word must have spread to other nations for her to say, I know that the Lord has given you the land. For her to say that, she must have heard the word of God from others. Not only that, that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. The terror of you has come upon us so much that we've got no strength, we've got no courage, there's not a man among us even among our soldiers, there's no one among us who is strong enough and who has a strong enough spirit to say, okay, even though your God says the land is yours, the city is yours, we're going to overcome and we're going to conquer you. There's nobody like that. Everybody is weak. Everybody is timid and fearful. Everybody knows that there's no way we're going to win against you because the Lord is on your side. Verse 10, why do they think that? For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. We heard about that. Now, that it was the biggest event of all of the events in Egypt or just outside of Egypt. That was the biggest one, to split the sea in half. 
to allow Israel to walk, millions of people to walk through it on dry land, but then the Egyptians and Pharaoh, their army, when they walked through it, to be drowned in all of that water. Now, they heard of that, and this is exactly, isn't it, what God said? What was it that God said? He said it to Pharaoh, Romans, uh, in Exodus 9, 16, he said, For this very purpose have I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And here's an example of this. God's name, from that great miracle in the wilderness and in Egypt, that name was proclaimed throughout the earth. As far as the land of Canaan, at least, at least to there, and she heard about who the God of Moses was and who the God of Joshua was. She heard about that. Not only did she hear about God's power there, but the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. The Jordan River goes north and south through the land of Israel. And on the eastern side, before they conquered it, these two kings were powerful kings, Sihon and Og. They were powerful kings on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Today, primarily, the country of Jordan is on that side. So on that side, that's where these two powerful kings were. And under Moses' leadership, they were able to conquer those two. So that's just on the other side of the river. And if that happened on the other side of the river, certainly the people on the west side of the river, where Rahab lived, they would hear about it. All the surrounding nations would have heard about it. And they would have told each other about it and tried to prepare themselves to withstand the onslaught of Joshua and his armies. That's what she heard about. But when she heard about it, and they heard about it, notice, all the people of Jericho, all the people of Canaan, they were demoralized. They were demoralized, discouraged from trying to fight against Israel. And they said, it's hopeless. We're not going to be able to conquer the Lord who's on their side. And what did they do? They were demoralized and disobedient. They were demoralized and didn't believe. They just said, okay, we'll do the best we can to withstand them, but that's it. They didn't repent. They didn't believe. In contrast to them, what did she do? What did she do? Verse 11. In contrast to them, what did she do? And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. She's talking about her countrymen. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. He is God up there uh, in heaven and on the earth. He's the only one that rules from sea to shining sea. He's the only one that rules throughout the, the, the globe where the sun rises and the sun sets. He's the only one who rules everywhere. And because He's the only one who rules everywhere, I want to be with you. Verse 12. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord. She didn't say swear to me by the gods of Canaan. She didn't say swear to me by Baal or Ashtaroth or anything like that. She didn't say swear to me by any other god. She said swear to me by the Lord. Swear to me by the Lord, the true God, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She wanted her own life and the life of her household to be spared from death. And she said, listen, 
You know I'm with you. You know I believe with you. And this is the evidence of it. I've done all of this to help you. I dealt kindly with you at the risk of my own life. Now I'm asking you to spare my life and the life of my household when you come to invade our city. Only a woman of faith would do that. A woman of faith. And that's what she was. Then we saw that the men indeed did so. Look at verse 15. They promised to do so, and then they, they confirm in words what they will do for her. Verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. Here is another example before they speak to her and she to them. Here's another example. She let the men down through, uh, by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. Don't you think, whether it's daytime or nighttime, that somebody still might be awake? Somebody still might be watching? Maybe there's a watchman for the king standing guard somewhere along the wall, watching Israel, watching to see if Joshua is going to invade at night, watching and watching and watching, and yet here too, she took a, a risk and let them down. And then 16, and she said to them, go to the hill country, lest the pursuers happen upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return, then afterward you may go on your way. Then she gave them an idea of the best place to go to hide. And hide for three days because she knew that after three days they would probably give up and then you can go back to Joshua and then eventually come and conquer the city. Go to the hill country. Go to the hill country. Go to the wooded area. Go to the forest. Go there and hide there for a while and then you'll be able to come back and spare my life. Verse 17, And the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie the, this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down, and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head, if a hand is laid on him." But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. And she said, According to your word, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Here uh, as well, the spies tell her what the conditions are, and she fulfills the conditions. She gathers her household into one place. She tells them not to go into the streets, don't go anywhere. Because if they go anywhere and we invade, we're going to kill everyone else. We're just going to spare your household. So they better stay in your house. And she made sure that that happened. We read in 617 and 625 that that's exactly what happened. She did it and her household all agreed to spare their lives in the house. And also she had to tie a scarlet thread in the window. A scarlet thread in the window. She had to do that in order to show the messengers that she was still with the program, still with what they wanted to do, and she was continuing to believe. In the number of days, in the days between 
this incident and the conquest, she didn't give up. She didn't become weak kneed. She didn't say, no, I give up. No, I changed my mind. She didn't do any of that. She kept on with this faith and with this obedience until it actually happened. And even beyond that, which we will see later. She kept up her faith, her trust in the Lord. And those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. She had a strong and certain faith. Now, when we think of this passage, this verse in our study of Hebrews 11.31, we also notice that it calls her Rahab the harlot. It calls her Rahab the harlot. Why does the text in Hebrews 11.31 and also James 2.25, why do they, as well, in Joshua 2 verse 1, Joshua 6.17 and 6.25, in all these places, the scripture calls her Rahab the harlot. It doesn't just call her Rahab, or it doesn't say Rahab of Jericho, or any other name. It doesn't give that name. It calls her Rahab the harlot. Now, when we say Rahab the harlot, what are we speaking of? Where a harlot is a prostitute, a whore, somebody who is giving her body away for money to other men, to men, not to her husband, but to men. She's giving her body away like that for price, for a cost. This is a harlot or a prostitute, a whore. That's what she was doing. We know that to be the case because all of these scriptures I just mentioned say that about her. Now, I must say that because some people throughout history and even today want to deny that the Bible actually calls her that. They want to say that the Bible doesn't actually call her that and the word should be translated an innkeeper, an innkeeper, or some kind of seller of food. An innkeeper, a hotel owner, or somebody who's got a food selling business. She, she's a restaurant owner. She's a restaurant owner, or she, she's a vegetable seller, she's a vegetable vendor, something like that, but she's not a harlot. And this is ha has happened throughout history, and even today, there are people who don't want to say that she was a harlot. When actually, the Hebrew word in Joshua chapters 2 and 6, and the Greek word in Hebrews 11 and in James 2, the Hebrew and Greek words for this word is the word harlot or prostitute. It is that word. There's no other way to look at that word. Now, if that's the case, then the next question arises. If it's certainly the case that she was a harlot, the next question arises, why in the world does the Bible continue to call her a harlot? Why does the Bible continue to call her a harlot? In Joshua 6, 17 and 25, she's not practicing her harlotry anymore. She's living in the midst of Israel by 6.25. And in Hebrews 11.31 and James 2, this is over a thousand years, likely 1,500 years later, that Hebrews and James were written from the time of this incident in the book of Joshua, and yet they are still calling her Rahab the harlot. And why? I believe that they are still calling her Rahab the harlot in order to use her 
as the epitome or the perfect example of the work of the grace of God in her life. This is the way she used to be, but we don't refer to her in that way to denigrate her, to spit on her face. We're not mistreating her by saying that. What we're doing is reminding ourselves of the grace of God in her life. That this is the way she used to be, not now. Now, she is a godly woman. Now she's a woman of God. Now she loves the Lord. Now she believes in the gospel of Christ. Now she's a true believer. She doesn't worship idols anymore, and she doesn't practice sexual immorality anymore. She loves the Lord. Because God's grace changed her. God's grace gave her a new heart. God's grace gave her faith. God's grace gave her repentance. And now she is a new woman. She's a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature or new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. She is no longer that way. Now, another thing that we must note about her, I said she's no longer that way. No longer that way. You may have heard a cliche in, in Christianity. You may have heard a cliche. God accepts you just the way you are. God accepts you just the way you are. God receives you just as you are. Just come the way you are. And the sentence or the cliche usually ends it. That is, that if you're a drug dealer, okay, God accepts you and you can continue dealing drugs. If you're a gambler, then you can continue your gambling, receive Christ and continue your gambling. Or any other sin, if that is your sin, God receives you, all you have to do is say, I believe, all you have to do is come to the altar, all you have to do is pray a prayer, all you have to do is raise your hand, all you have to do is write your hand, your, your name in a book, and then you're saved, and then you can continue as you are, because God accepts you as you are. However, that's not in the Bible at all. That's from Satan. It is not from the Bible at all. When we come to Christ, if we truly come to Christ, then if we used to be a harlot, we cannot be a harlot anymore. We fight against it, and we reject it, and do whatever it takes to walk away from that. If we were an adulterer, then we must walk away from adultery. We cannot do that anymore. If we used to steal, if we used to lie, if we used to cheat people, if we used to dishonor our parents, if we used to be very hateful towards people, if our mouth was filthy, full of profanity and filthy talk and using God's name in vain, then we don't do those things anymore. That's what the Bible expects. Yes, we come to Christ as sinners, but sinners who are willing to turn away from sin, willing to turn away from sin, and whatever our sins are, and there are many, there are, whatever they are, we begin at that time to acknowledge them, to reject them, and to walk away from them. That's what should start upon our conversion, upon our profession of faith. No raising of the hands, no saying a simple prayer, no coming to the altar, no one action like that is going to be the magic or the holy water that, we, uh, that preachers sprinkle on you to make you into a Christian. That doesn't make you into a Christian. But true faith in Jesus Christ and turning away from sin is an evidence uh, that you are a true Christian. This is what Rahab experienced. She did not continue in her ways. Now, how can we know 
that she did not continue in her wicked ways. Notice it tells us in Joshua 6.25 that when she was spared, and she and all her household, that she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. She has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. That is, once Joshua wrote the book of Joshua, and before he died and he wrote that, she was living there. Now, if she was living in the midst of Israel, the question arises, then who was she and what did she do? Matthew tells us the answer to that. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, will tell us what happened. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. While you're finding your page in Matthew 1, we notice that in this genealogy of Jesus Christ, there are five women mentioned. One is unnamed, but there are five women mentioned. And notice, we'll start at verse 1. In the middle of those women, who one of them is? 1-1. One, one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron Ram. And to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab, Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. To Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king. This is a genealogy of Jesus Christ. These are the ancestors of Jesus Christ. And now who is reckoned among the ancestors of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? Rahab. Rahab. And who did she marry? It says Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Ruth. When we read the book of Ruth, Boaz married Ruth. Boaz married Ruth, as it mentions it here. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed Jesse, and to Jesse David. King David, and we know Christ is the son of David, an ans uh, or a descendant of David and of Abraham. So, she not only lived in the midst of Israel, but notice, but notice something? She married in the tribe of Judah, and she married in the lineage of Jesus Christ, which means that she was in the line of the princes of Judah. Because the tribe of Judah, that was to be the tribe, not at this point yet, but to be the tribe where the kings came, or the princes came, from Judah, and then specifically in the line of David. The kings were supposed to come there. So she had that kind of elevation after her conversion. She married one of the men of the tribe of Judah, who was in the line of David, who's in the line of Christ. She was nothing and worthless a no-name, and now she has a name. That's what God did in her life. He transformed her and changed her. We have to see a stark contrast. We have to see a stark contrast between what God did for her in the tribe of Judah in contrast to somebody else in the tribe of Judah. Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. In this chapter, 
after they conquered the city of Jericho, they were trying to conquer the next city, and they couldn't. They were defeated. And when they were defeated, God tells them why they were defeated. Because someone, when they conquered Jericho, sinned against the commandment of God. Somebody sinned against the commandment of God when they conquered Jericho. God gave them victory in Jericho, but He did not give them victory for the next city, but defeat. And when they were defeated, they cried out to the Lord, and God answered them and told them why. Let's pick it up at verse 16. Joshua chapter 7, verse 16. This is about a man named Achan, Achan or, and his household. What happened to him and his household? So Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. Now, they're trying to find out who the culprit was who disobeyed the commandment of God. Joshua 7, 16. Who is this culprit? Verse 17. And he brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zerahites, and he brought the family of the Zerahites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household near man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold, fifty shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent, with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. And they took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day, and the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Achor also means trouble, the Valley of Trouble, because there Achan is memorialized by that heap of stones. Now, what is the contrast here? Who was spared from Jericho? Who was spared from Jericho? A woman, a Canaanitess, a harlot, and a poor woman. Because usually prostitutes are poor, correct? Usually. Not necessarily always, but usually they're on the poor side. And it's likely that that's what she was. But in contrast, somebody in the nation of Israel, somebody in the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Judah, the prominent tribe of Judah, 
a man in that tribe, a wealthy man in that tribe, who also had a family, what happened to him? Because he did not have faith. Because he disobeyed the command of God. What happened to him and his household and all of his possessions? Gone. Destroyed. Perished. Right? What is the Lord teaching us with this? He's teaching us that it doesn't matter whether you are rich or poor. It doesn't matter whether you are male or female. It doesn't matter whether you are from Israel or from Canaan. It doesn't matter. None of these things that people do to divide one another, and we do know that today it always happens, right? Aren't we taught today in feminism that all men are evil? All men are evil. You should be suspicious of all men. Isn't that what feminism teaches us today? It teaches girls and women in school and colleges and in social media and in movies and even at theme parks to hate men, to look down on men, and to usurp authority, to say and do whatever you want to do to get your way. Isn't that what happens? But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says that men and women and black and white, or brown, or red, or yellow, whatever the complexion is of your skin, it doesn't matter that what really matters is faith in Jesus Christ. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, then everything else does not matter. So don't make everything else matter. And say, well, it's easy for men to obey, but not women. Or it's easy for women to obey, but not men. Well, it's easy for white people to obey, but not black people. Or it's easy for this rich person to obey, but not for the poor people. But it's easy for the poor people to obey, but not for the rich people. No, we shouldn't even be looking at it in those categories. The main thing is, are we repenting of sin and putting our faith in Jesus Christ that he died on the cross for our sins? If we believe that, then it doesn't matter. We should be getting along with everybody. We should be one body in Christ with everybody. It doesn't matter. We should love one another as the Bible teaches us to love one another. I believe that's what it's teaching us here. But also, we have to remember that it's easy for rich people to put their hope, to be conceited, and to put their hope in the uncertainty of riches. They should not do that. They should not do that. Remember Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 21-32 that the tax collectors and harlots will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. They will enter the kingdom of God before them because they thought they were secure. They thought they were fine before God. They thought they did not need to repent of anything. But the tax collectors, when John and Jesus preached against them, they repented. When John and Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus preached against the harlots, they repented. They repented, they turned to Christ. But why was it that the secure people, the wealthy people, would not? Because of sin. They put their hope in the uncertainty of riches. Now may I also say that poor people do likewise. You know what poor people do? They say, woe is me. They say, woe is me. People are always against me. The rich are always against me. I can never make it in life. My circumstances are miserable. I can't do it. God's not with me. God doesn't care for me. God doesn't love me. So I'm going to cheat. I'm going to covet. I'm going to do whatever I can to get my way because I need to survive. I need to eat. Everybody needs to eat, right? 
So I'm going to steal, I'm going to cheat, I'm going to lie, I'm going to do whatever it takes in order to make it in this world because this is my lot. And all those rich people, they're exploiting me anyways, so this is what I deserve. That's not right either. That's sin too. And Rahab didn't do that. At least at this point, that we know her, she didn't do that. She repented and she believed in the gospel. And that's what we need to do too. It doesn't matter who we are, rich or poor, we must believe in the gospel. Next, from Hebrews 11.31, it says that Rahab the harlot did not perish. She did not perish. When the scripture says that she did not perish, we know she did not perish physically like Achan did. She did not perish physically like Achan. But the Bible doesn't mean it merely in that way. It's saying that she did not perish physically as an example or a token, an illustration of how she did not perish spiritually. She went to heaven. She was saved from her sins. She believed in the gospel of Christ. That's what it's saying when it says she did not perish. He has already warned us throughout the letter of Hebrews that we should not shrink back to destruction. We should have faith that perseveres to the saving of the soul. He has told us that again and again and again. That's why he's using Rahab as this example, saying she did not perish, so that we not perish. And whenever these kinds of destructions happen, when people perish this way in their sin and misery, it's a token, it's an example of how they're going to help. You have seen such people. To use a stark, clear, blatant example, how about the man who says that there is no God, who's an atheist, who leads a wicked life, and everybody knows he's a wicked man. He's notorious in his town for being a wicked man. Maybe he has even murdered a few people. Maybe he has done even a, a things that are very blatant and explicit. Everybody knows that. And then on his deathbed, he has an opportunity to repent, and he's got this look of anguish or, or, uh, or anger on his face, his, uh, faith, uh, face, and he doesn't have faith. He has this look that he doesn't want anything to do with God, even though he's about to die and breathe his last breath. We hear of those kinds of men, don't we? They die like that. They live a miserable life. They die on their deathbed that way. And what do we say? If we understand the Bible, what do we say? Can we say that he went to heaven? No. We must say he went to hell. We cannot say he went to heaven. We must say he went to hell. That's an example or a token. And this is what the Bible does. It gives us many examples like this. It gives us the example of Rahab not perishing, but Achan perishing, and the people of Jericho perishing. It gives the example of Lot being spared from Sodom and Gomorrah, but the rest of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were all destroyed. It gives us the example of Noah and his family being spared from the flood, but all the rest of the people, billions of people on the, in the world, destroyed in the flood. It gives us the example like this time and time again. In 2 Peter 2.5, it says, The flood destroyed the world of the ungodly. The ungodly were the ones who perished in the flood. In Jude 7, it says that it that Sodom and Gomorrah is exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. 
but not Rahab, because she had true faith in the gospel, not Rahab. Now, who is it that perished? Hebrews 11.31 says, those who were disobedient. Those who were disobedient. Now, who were disobedient? We could say Achan was disobedient. He knew the explicit, external word of God. He knew the written word of God, what Joshua and Moses had commanded, and he disobeyed that. We could say he and his household were disobedient, but who else perished being disobedient? The people of Jericho. Did not the people of Jericho perish? Yes. Now, this is a lesson to us, that the people out there in the world, we think the only people that God will hold accountable are the people who have access to the Bible. But the people who don't know anything about the Bible, who live in remote places, who live in rural areas, who live in the forests, who live in the mountains, who live way out there where nobody can find them, those people aren't sinners. They're not disobedient. They don't perish. Only those who have access to the Bible and reject it perish. We think that those people way out there, since they are loving and kind people, they stick to themselves, they don't do anything wrong, they're not mass murdering anybody, right? They're not doing anything like that. So they must be good enough people and they're going to heaven, just like the people of Jericho. Actually, no. The people of Jericho, they were destroyed as an example that they were disobedient. That's why they were destroyed. They weren't destroyed because they were cute and cuddly people. They were destroyed because they were vicious. They were rebels against God. That's why they were destroyed. Do you think the people of Jericho did not know that when they bowed down to a block of wood, that the block of wood was not a lie? Of course they knew that. They knew the block of wood would not talk to them. They knew that the block of wood, even if they made it into a shape of a man, that if it had hands, the hands couldn't help them. They knew that. They knew, the Canaanites knew, that idolatry was wrong. Did the Canaanites not know that stealing was wrong? Surely they knew that. The, the people of Jericho, the Canaanites, they knew that stealing was wrong. Who wants to have his possessions stolen? Is it right for a neighbor, let's say a next-door neighbor, to just walk into the other house whenever he can, or even to force his way into the house, and then start taking away things from your own house? Taking away your furniture, taking away your valuables, your, your, your jewelry, taking away some other possessions you have to find your car keys and just take it away and walk away? Is it right? No, it's not right. We know that, that that's not right. It doesn't take knowledge of the Bible to know what's right and wrong about that, right? People know that, and yet people do that. People know it's wrong, but yet people still do that. That's the way the people of Jericho were. They worshipped idols. They practiced sexual immorality. They practiced all kinds of other sins. You can read about them in two chapters of the Bible, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. These people out there who did not have ready access to the Word of God, they knew the difference between right and wrong, and they deserved to be punished because they would not repent of the wrong and do the right. Doing the right in Christ. Furthermore, 
Furthermore, we read, after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Hebrews 11.31 says, after she had welcomed the spies in peace, that's why she did not perish. This also explains why it's in Hebrews, uh, or in Hebrews 11.31, this incident is explained after Jericho, even though Rahab had this dialogue with the spies before Jericho, but she was spared after Jericho. She was spared after Jericho was invaded, and that's why it's here in sequence. Mm -hmm. Now, when it's here, what did she do to manifest her faith? All that we read about in Joshua chapter 2 is summarized in this one short statement. What did she do? She welcomed the spies in peace. She welcomed what their business was. She protected them. She swore an oath with them. She did what was necessary to protect them, to protect the nation of Israel, to protect herself and her own family. She did whatever it took by welcoming them in peace. This reiterates the point that her faith was manifested in obedience. The people perished because of disobedience, but she obeyed. She was kind to the people of God. She did what was necessary to help the people of God at the risk of her own life. She welcomed them, she provided for them, and she sent them, set them away in peace. This is what she did. Which shows that if you have true faith, there must be fruit. And she had fruit. Remember what Lydia did, another woman, in Acts chapter 16? She heard the gospel from Paul. And she was there with at least one other woman by the riverside to pray, or the, the apostles went there to pray, and she was there by the riverside. And the apostle preached the gospel, and it says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So God opened her heart, she repented and she believed. But then the next verse says, then she urged us by saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, stay with us. So she wanted to practice hospitality. She wanted to be generous to the men of God because they had just shared the spiritual truth in the Word of God. She believed it, and then she wanted to be generous toward them. So she practiced hospitality because she urged it upon them. They stayed with her in her household. This is the same thing of Rahab. This is the same thing with all true believers. What, what they have, they begin to share. They begin to show by the fruit of the Spirit that they love their neighbor, they love the brothers, they love those in the body of Christ in the way they should. When they see a need, they meet the need. They don't wait for somebody to say, hey, would you go do this? They go and do it. They see the need, they have a concern, and they help out. Rahab did that, Lydia did that, and so should we. We ought to produce fruits, evidence, that we truly have faith. This occurred with them. Now, one more brief point I would like to make, and that is, you may read in commentaries, if you are reading certain books, but especially if you listen to the media and social media, if you listen on the internet, to an interpretation of this passage, Joshua chapter 2, or even Hebrews 11.31, James 2.25, if you listen to a commentary or people um, 
spouting their opinions about this verse. Because our culture has become so corrupt, both in academia and in popular culture, both in the university and seminaries and in our popular culture, when they come to a passage like Joshua 2, you know what they say about it? They say that the two spies of Joshua went there to Rahab the harlot to have sex with her. That's why they went there. And the Bible says that that's okay. And because the Bible says that's okay, today we should legalize what they call the sexual professions. Legalize prostitution. After all, it's a way, it's a way of making money. It's a business, right? So legalize it. Do this and do that. First, they start with a perverted interpretation of Joshua chapter 2. And then they say, we all should be able to do it just like they did in the Bible. It's there in the Bible, so we should be able to do the same thing. So let's legalize it. Let's legalize what used to be considered a sin. They do this on this passage. You may not have ever heard that, but they do it on this passage. Even in popular social media culture. Social media culture, certain websites, certain discussion boards, this is what they are saying. They are indeed doing this. And these people are so shameless, so shameless, that they will even say that David and Jonathan, David and Jonathan in the book of Samuel, that they were homosexuals. And that was right and good. They even say, in blasphemy, they even say in blasphemy that Jesus and John the Apostle were homosexuals. Jesus and John the Apostle were homosexuals because after all, it says in the book of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved or the beloved disciple. So instead of that phrase, the Bible means it in that they were close friends, they were close friends, had a kindred spirit, Jesus and John the Apostle, and he had a special friendship with him more than with the other disciples. That's what the Bible means. But they have made that statement into a homosexual statement and blasphemed Christ. We cannot do that. Remember I started at the beginning by saying that we, when we read Hebrews 11.31, it's not only teaching us to have faith, to obey, to endure until the end in the face of death, but it's teaching us to interpret the Bible correctly. Let us learn to interpret the Bible correctly. Not putting our ideas into the Bible, but letting the Bible speak for itself, plainly speak for itself, and then have faith in what it says, and then obey what it says. Let's do so. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.